0: Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a podcast that explores the art and science of leadership. I'm Kate Arms. I'm
1: Alyssa Dickman. I'm Nitya Shaker. Each episode, we deep dive into one leadership book to share what we liked and what we think you can apply to your own personal leadership journey.
0: So here we are with our third guest episode, and today I have the pleasure of introducing to our listeners one of my dear friends, Christine Gautreau, and the book that she brought for us, which is Stacey Abrams' Lead from the Outside, which is a really great gift, I think you will discover, that she brought to us. So Alyssa and Christine, welcome.
2: Hello. Hello. Glad to be here. Hello.
0: So, Christine, before we get into talking about the book, if you would just introduce yourself to our listeners and then maybe tell us why you chose the book and then we'll just launch it in. Oh, you
2: bet. Thanks for this opportunity, y'all. My name is Christine Gautreaux. I use she, her, her pronouns, and I usually zoom in from the land of the Muscogee Creek, which is north of Atlanta, Georgia, in a place called Duluth, Georgia. And I am a coach, an author, an activist, a dancing social worker, and all kinds of fun stuff, including the co-host of the Women Connected in Wisdom podcast. And I chose this book for a couple of reasons. I adore Stacey Abrams, and I have a story about that that we can talk about later on. I think Stacey Abrams is an incredible leader, and what she brings to the table is brilliant and I want to know more about her. I just think she's brilliant and so I read this book and I wanted to talk about it more and this was even before she announced her second run for the gubernatorial race of Georgia and that's you know that's where I reside. So I have I have a lot of invested in how this race comes out and so I like the way she thinks and I just want to learn as much as I can from her.
0: Well, thank you. And I think that what our listeners will hear as we talk about this book, which I had not read until you brought it forward. So I'm really, really pleased is the book is titled Lead from the Outside. And we're going to talk, I'm sure, about the ways that not being from a easily privileged position changes some of the things in terms of leadership. But there's an awful lot in here that is mainstream leadership, kind of. Let's just make sure that everybody knows this. It's not just for people who already have power to be better leaders, kind of stuff. Absolutely. So, so
1: to get started, I'm just sort of curious, Alyssa, what did you think of the book? I really enjoyed it. I've become familiar with. Stacey Abrams through listening to other interviews that she's done. So so there was something really fun about hearing her voice as I read this. And I think that just added another layer. And what I loved is that we're reading all of these leadership books and they all bring something to the table. This one is so personal. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of books we read bring in a lot of stories. Some of them are stories from the author's experience. A lot of times they're stories from the experience of clients of the authors. And this one is just completely threaded through with her own experiences. Even when it's the experience of a friend or a family member, it's someone very close to her. And she's had some interaction within that story or situation too. So that was something I really liked just about how the book itself was put together.
0: It's a really, really cool book because at the end of the chapters, there are exercises and things to do. It's definitely a book that if you are trying to figure out how to lead from the outside, she's got tools and you can go and not have to go to other places. Though actually when she talks about money, she's got lots of places that she suggests that you do go. But the actual text of it, I could imagine just sitting over tea and having her just saying, okay, this is how it really is. And this is how we really get stuff done. There really is a very personal voice.
2: That's who she is. That's, I was just having a conversation this last week with the, executive director and founder of Reforming Arts, who it's an um, organization that I currently serve as their chairman of their board. And they're a small nonprofit in Georgia who work with women under carceral control in Georgia and those are that are reentering. So they use the arts in this. Right. And the executive director, Wendy Blue, we were telling our Stacey Abrams stories of different times we have interacted with Stacey at different events. And Wendy says, yeah, we were at this photo op and I hadn't seen Stacy in a couple of years. And we, my wife and Erin and I step up to take a picture and she, as they're stepping the picture, she goes, as they're sm- smiling, she goes, are you still doing the work in the prisons? That's the kind of leader she is. She is personally involved. She hadn't seen Wendy in probably three years. And in the midst of thousands of people, Stacy knew who they were and recognize the work they do in the world. And that's, her voice was completely throughout that book. How do we do this, right? With relationship and connections.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what's in the book. She starts with a lot of stuff about why it's so hard if you start on the outside to come in and get power. I think it's worth spending some real time talking about the kinds of things that she points out. Because... We read so many books for the podcast and and those of us who are in the sort of leadership space, so many of the books sort of assume that you've been given some power and this book assumes that it's going to be hard to get. What did you take away from her stories about what it's important to know if you don't start with power?
2: You know, the thing that jumped out at me, so many things jumped out at me, but the thing that jumped out at me about the most was her advice around finances. I even wrote a note about it because this line jumped out at me. Money is one of the biggest obstacles to leadership. The fact that when you don't have power and money is often a source of power and access, that it can completely impede great leaders from having access to it. That's what jumped out at me.
0: Yeah. She got so tactical about Mm -hmm. money and financing and the ways that if you start from a place where money is a challenge, asking for money is hard. Getting money is hard. Feeling entitled to money is hard. Having other people around you who don't have money, who have valid needs. So you have to decide as you get money, if you manage to cross that boundary, what do you do with the money that you have? She talks about early on in her career where she's first making good money and how much her family was in need and how much it fit her values to spend that money, not building her career and her power base, but on taking care of her family.
1: There's things she talks about that Once you read them in print, they seem so obvious, but there are lessons that people just aren't taught as a matter of fact. That big point about understanding the difference between income and wealth, Mm -hmm. that to me really stood out because where do you learn that? I think a lot of us learn the basics about you need to have more money coming in than going out, right? And we learn maybe to balance a checkbook, although I know that's a those <laughs> days are gone. But in general, that idea of income and expenses, we get an idea of, but the idea of the difference between income and wealth, I think is just a topic that most people don't come in contact with until you get into a situation like she describes, where she has educational debt, she has credit card debt, she has very low credit, so that even when she is making on paper a really good salary, she can't get a loan. She isn't sure she can get the financing for a Honda Accord when some of her classmates are buying really fancy cars. The value of understanding that Earlier. And like you said, Kate, she does get very tactical. So she brings up this very conceptual thing of the difference between income and wealth. But then she gets tactical about here are some things to do along the way to increase your wealth as well as your understanding of the difference. Yeah.
0: And I think the other, I mean, the other side of that is that for people who are reading this book, who are inspired by Stacy, who haven't actually come up through that kind of needing to find money at that level and for whom money has not been an issue. Just to know how many people don't have that information opens your eyes. I've been going through a thing really interestingly recently that seems so on point here in that American taxes are far more complicated Than Canadian taxes. And I'm an American citizen living and working in Canada right now. And I grew up in a family that had enough resources that there were mutual funds in the kind of money space that my parents were handling. And I worked for a company that just got bought. Everybody who worked for the company had stock options that then got exercised as part of the acquisition. And then we got stock in the new company. And everybody in the company whether they had any financial literacy or understanding about the stock market or not, has been thrown into complicated taxes around stuff that they don't know. And it's been an enormous six months of people going, I don't even know how I'm going to pay my taxes. Some of whom Are totally fine. And it's actually just that they don't know what they don't know. And so they're anxious about not knowing. And there are some people who are in complicated tax situations where it's going to be a little costly and some things are going on. It's a win for everybody in the long run. But The anxiety is most for the people who have never seen anything like this before in their lives. It's disorienting. And if you don't even know to ask the questions, I mean, in my context, at least HR is telling us we should be asking the questions. But if you don't even know to ask the questions, it's such a place of, well, she couldn't get alone and then she figured it all out. It's like, oh, (laughs) this is what I should have been doing that I didn't even know I should have been doing.
2: You know, she talks about that in the book, Kate, about women entrepreneurs and women who are doing startups don't know to ask for money for investment that men often just ask that investors don't have to have a sure bet. But when you are from the outside and you don't know how that works, people tend to think oh, I don't need that help, or I do it by myself. They buy into that mindset of people pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. That myth of, oh, this person who's so successful and who made it did it all on their own. And so they don't ask for the capital or they don't have access to the good old boy network to know how to do that. So just like you said, like it's confusing or it's, it doesn't make sense if, if you've had no exposure to it at all.
1: And then on the other side then she also does get very specific about the things you do need to know and be sure of when you're asking. So it's not just go out and ask because other people ask. It's go out and ask. And when you do know your audience, be able to tell people where the money's going. I just love that she kind of is constantly zooming in and zooming out in terms of let's talk about what we don't know about money. Now let's zoom in and say, these are the things you do need to know. Let's zoom out about being brave and being able to exercise boldness as she talks about, but then let's zoom in so that you don't just read her book and say, okay, I'm going to be bold. It's here's some ways that I can be bold. And when I'm going To step out in boldness, I'm going to do it in this way and be armed with this knowledge or this data.
2: Yeah, I love that, Alyssa. I love her leadership style that way, that she does do the macro and then gets really detailed with us. You know, one of the things she talks about in the book was the building of your mentorship network. Oh, yeah. And like how valuable that was. And I think about that when, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Right? It doesn't matter what stage of career we're in or what level we're at. If we don't know it, we don't know it. So what mentors do we need? And I really love the way she broke down that you need more than one. You need the sponsor. You need the advisor, the situational. You need the peer. I had never really thought about it that way before I read Stacy's book. That was a specific that I was like, okay, yeah, that makes total sense. And who are the people I already have in my lives that fill this role? And where am I lacking?
0: One of the things I loved about the mentorship piece too was she talks about they may not be the people that you think the mentors should be. You do want to have some people who don't look like you, but you also need the people who do look like you. They may be junior to you, they may be lateral, they may be outside your field. And so she was really sort of specific. The other piece in there that I wish. I had learned when I was young that I did not learn until I was much older than I care to admit, is as someone who wants a mentor and who wants mentoring and who needs advice, it's your responsibility to ask and to find the people and to take judgment and care in who you trust. I remember very, very clearly in college seeing one of the professors in the theater department take somebody under their wing and do all sorts of things for them. And I was like, why did he pick her and not me? Like I'm better than she is. And it's because she nurtured that relationship and she knew how to do that. And I didn't know that that was my job.
1: Yeah. That whole point of the responsibility of the relationship being on the mentee and the idea of being easy to support Make yourself easy to support. Because I'm sure we've all seen situations where the same three people get asked to be mentors again and again. Mm -hmm. So they might be the most kind-hearted and generous mentors in the world, but they get overloaded. What can you do to actually be easy to support and to be really clear about what it is you want from them? She had that one story about the two younger women who came to her one didn't talk as much but then that's the person who still checks in with her every 3 months so it's a very regular a regular cadence and awareness on both sides of what do they both need from the relationship what do they both give to the relationship that idea i think is one that gets flipped on its head where we think oh will you mentor me will you tell me everything I need to know? And will you show me the way? And that idea of flipping the script and saying, it's really my responsibility as the mentee to guide the relationship and make it as easy as possible for someone to mentor you.
2: I have to say on that point too, it absolved some guilt. I didn't realize I had about a situation years ago that somebody asked me to mentor them. And I said, you bet. And then They never contacted me and i'd always had this piece of guilt of like oh i failed them and then when i read that whole piece i was like oh no it was their responsibility and i was like okay i had said yes but they hadn't followed up and then i always i didn't even realize i had that little piece of me until i read that part and i was like okay yeah that makes total sense
1: and it also makes me think christine you were talking about the things we we don't know what we don't know As someone on the mentoring side, it's an opportunity to say, yes, I will mentor you. Here's what I expect. And let someone know at the beginning their responsibility. So you don't just have two people waiting for the other one to reach out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this because this, in the space of you don't know what you don't know, part of how we can help other people is by sharing what we do know that we know that they don't know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Say that three times. (laughs) No, I think I'll
0: try not to, but (laughs) yeah. There's this place about how do you ask for the things where what you're asking for is, can you share with me the things you think I'm missing? It's this weird place of bold humility where it's actually saying, I know I don't know what I need to know to get to where I want to go. I see that you have achieved things that I want to achieve. I want to be easy for you to be able to sort of drip pieces of useful information into. And that takes an enormous amount of courage. You have to admit what you don't know and you have to admit your weaknesses. I know that everybody struggles with this, but the way that she talks about what it's like as a woman of color sort of Doing that dance of trying to look competent enough to be taken seriously was really heartbreaking to read, honestly. That line can be so hard to find in certain cases where you own your competence and still you have to ask for help.
2: Right. And so much trickier from reading the book and from friends of color that I know so much trickier for women of color than women who look like me as a white woman. And it's already hard enough, right? Adding those extra obstacles in the path is, whew. Yeah.
0: I think one of the things I really like about this whole book is she is just straightforward about the obstacles She doesn't wallow in them and she doesn't glamorize them or romanticize them, but she doesn't shy away from them. She just is like, there's going to be people who push back at you if you don't come in already looking like they do. And there are things you're going to have to worry about. And you're going to have to find that place where you are striking a balance that works for you that's moving forward in the directions that you want to go and taking care of yourself and figuring out who to trust, who it's okay to upset and who it's not okay to upset. She got real about, mm-hmm. this is not something that she wants you to go. Oh, all right. I'm just going to go out there and be bold. Right? Like, she's very clear. You have to be strategic about how you're going to be bold. Well,
2: and I really loved how she named, and and I watch her do this through her public life and the way she runs her organizations in this book, too, about she gives credit where credit is due. I love how in the book she talked about, look, I was making this misstep, and this colleague pulled me aside and said, hey, don't do that, right, as another female leader. And the one story, and I thought I had written it down because I wanted to really talk about it, but y'all help me with this one. It was the one where she was dim in her own light and she was saying it was no big deal. Mm -hmm. And her female colleague pulled her inside and said, look, you want to have humility, but don't keep saying you're not a big deal or people will start to believe you. It was something to that. I'm probably getting her wording wrong on that, but That was powerful.
1: Yeah. That one stuck with me too. I don't have notes about the actual story, but one thing that I did make a note of was when she said too many of us use the illusion of humbleness to keep ourselves down. And that difference between humbleness and kind of the outside showing of humbleness, the difference between that and humility, which she talks about as being a deep anchor. It's, Mm -hmm. Again, another one of those things where how often do we think about the distinction between humility and humbleness, how that shows up and what it does to people's perception of you, depending on where that's coming from.
0: One of the things that she said sort of in that light was she said that she won't make self-deprecating comments about her race or gender, right? That place of like, she's going to have enough people doing that for her. That's a thing she needs to not do to herself. I would say
2: that none of us need to do to each other either, especially yeah. as female leaders. Let's, yeah, let's stop that. Let's take Stacy's cue on that and stop that one.
0: <laughs> the older I get, the more I think that self-deprecating humor in general is dangerous mm-hmm. uh, because we believe it about ourselves and other people believe it about us, knowing that we don't know everything that is all just human. And that's hard enough as it is. We don't need to put any more
1: barriers in our own ways. Right? I think about the self-deprecating humor and the fact that when we say something like that, we know we have a certain tone to our voice that's either not taking it totally seriously or just putting it in a joking context. But then if you were to just take those words without any tone, then we're just giving people a way to articulate something that's actually damaging about us. We don't have to give people more ammunition. We don't have to assist in taking ourselves down. Right.
0: I think the impulse often comes from if I take myself down before you take me down, that won't hurt me so much. Right. I think that that sort of gets to some of the stuff that's early on in the book. Early on in the book, she just talks about the assumptions that if you are on the outside... Of systems of power, the assumptions that you make about what's possible just because you haven't seen somebody who looks like you or comes from where you are. The story about the Rhodes Scholarship Mm -hmm. interview process, where she nearly doesn't apply, she nearly doesn't go, she gets through Mississippi, she doesn't get the scholarship, but she goes much further than she believed she could just because people help her and people push her and nudge her and say, no, you really have to to go for this. I took that really personally as a story because I actually have a grandfather who was a Rhodes scholar. And so for me, it was always in the realm of possibility. It was always the kind of thing that the fact that I didn't end up in that direction was kind of a, like, am I actually pushing myself as far as I can? And so to read that story of her having to talk herself into and having to be talked into even applying and even going through the process. And I look at her now and I think, oh my goodness, like she's done so much with her life and I've done different things with my life, but in some scales she's done more. So that was a really personal hit for me about what I just got because of where I came from and who I came from.
2: I loved how she talked about ambition and locating your ambition. Because as women, especially women in the South, where I was raised and Stacy was raised, you know, we were kind of taught not to have that. There's a lot of stereotypes, there's a lot of external world pressure. So I really loved how she talked about how do you locate your ambition and her story of making a spreadsheet of goals for 40 years. I was like, I thought I was a list maker. Jeez Louise, like that was awesome. <laughs>
1: There was something there also about ambition that really stuck out to me as a total reframe for looking at it when she says that fear can be a mask for ambition. Mm -hmm. Because I know that as we coach people, we talk a lot about fear. And in our own self-development, we look at fear as something that gets in our way. But that idea of looking at fear as a mask for ambition was just something that struck me as something I want to spend a little time with.
0: Yeah. The relationship between fear and ambition is so interesting. And Christine, you pointed out that for women in particular, so much the history of my ambition doesn't matter. It's my partner, my husband, it's my kid's ambition. It's not my ambition that matters. I'm not allowed to have any. And then that all just leaks out. I mean, how many people people do we know that have problematic relationships with their mothers because their mothers needed them to live out their Their mother's ambitions in the world, right? I I know I saw that. My mother dropped out of graduate school to get married. That was always sort of in the story of this is what it is to be a woman in the world is that sort of image shows up and this stuff, we pass it down and we don't need to talk about it. We just need to, you know, have it be known. And then young people are like, okay, this is how the world is. Here are the assumptions that I'm making about what it is to be from where I'm from and who I am.
2: Wow. Okay. You saying that this memory just exploded in my brain because my mom got up to writing her thesis for her master's degree and she dropped out to take care of the family. I hadn't even put all that together of why I have my master's degree and why I had this and that, like, it was like, Oh yeah. Like (laughs) some of those hidden stories that, you know, I hadn't even really thought about that story in forever, but that was so much when I was a kid, I heard that story.
0: This is so much a book written from the perspective of a Black woman who didn't come from affluence, telling her story with advice to other people who are coming from the world that she came from with real practical solutions to the problems that she faced so why should affluent folks white folks white men read this book because i think they should i mean Mm -hmm. that's my short answer is i think that they should and i think it's because i think it gives you a window into parts of the world you might not have seen otherwise i know that one of the things that i see in the diversity and inclusion work that i do at work the opportunities for the people who are white men who've come from more or less privileged backgrounds where this kind of path forward into leadership was always on the table as a possibility, whether they made it there or not. When they hear the real lived experiences of the customer service people who get treated badly when they're on the front lines because their English isn't standard or they have accents, or some of the other lived experiences about how hard it was to get to where they got to, even if they look like they're at the bottom of the corporate (laughs) hierarchy, it starts to open hearts and get compassion in a way that just thinking about, well, I believe that everybody has value doesn't get when they hear the stories about what it's really like.
2: I agree, Kate. Research shows us that oftentimes Black women are more educated and have more degrees, but they're cut off from passive leadership because they don't have access. And so I think that white affluent straight men should read this book because I think it can help open their hearts and minds around how much talent and brilliance is out there and how they can help create pathways and see that there's such a talent pool that is often excluded because they don't know how to access it and they don't know how to get there. I think that's why they should read it is because they need to be part of the solution of how do we shift this? How do we shift this accessibility and make it more wide open? So we've got all the brilliance in the
1: room. Absolutely. And I would just use some of Stacy's own words In making this point that this is an opportunity for someone like Stacey Abrams to demonstrate the power of her difference. And in doing that, open up the logic of possibility for folks that haven't had those kinds of interactions and aren't aware of those stories.
0: I think one of the things that I'm thinking about listening to the two of you is one of the things that I get. Reading this book, I get a vision of oh, this is what really skilled leadership from that position looks like, because it doesn't look the same. These pieces of building a network that are lots of small donors and talking through neighborhood communities, none of whom are full of people who look like they've got institutional power, but who collectively come together and raise money, that actually that's an incredible incredible set of relationship building skills there's persistence and ingenuity and creativity and problem solving that if you know how to look for it it's so clearly there And having this story laid out, it gives a model for what you might look for if you're looking for the kind of talent that you might want in your organizations from non-traditional backgrounds. And she
2: leads with relationship. I love that about her leadership. She really values people and relationships. Y'all know I'm a huge fan. I told Kate this story when she asked me about doing this podcast with y'all when she was making her first run for the governorship. We were at the Democratic Georgia Convention and I was asked to be on stage behind her when she gave her big speech. And I was probably one of maybe two white women on the stage and I was right behind her to her upper right. And I was thrilled, right, to be there. I was thrilled to be there. And I get on the stage and all I can think is, oh my gosh, don't let me make a mistake and end up on The Daily Show because, you know, like, (laughs) how how somebody like, is it like, I was like, the optics of the whole, I mean, that that does come through in the books too. And Kate and I were talking about this, how careful women leaders, but especially women leaders of color, their optics have to be. It is judged and perceived and looked at and I think that's a big part of this conversation also yeah we can laugh about it but it's really real yeah do you want to talk about the work life jinga? because i loved that concept so much because you know my jam is self-care yeah. My, my jam is always self-care to sustain community care. I'm the author of the book Still Point, which is a book for caregivers about self-care. And when she talked about work-life Jenga, it made so much sense to me because I look at what she has accomplished in her life. She is an author. She is a lawyer. She was the first woman of color that was the minority chair for the Georgia Georgia legislature. And I'm like, how does she get all this done? And she explains in the book her work-life Jenga. So sometimes you have to pull more on the work and then you just
0: balance it back up there and... (laughs) Did y'all love that? I did. I did. The idea that it's not anything like balance. Right. <laughs> right. It's all a teetering mess and it's about to come tumbling down at any minute. And it's just like we patch it and band aid it and we make it work one way or another. And we, look for the place that's the weak spot and the strong spot and we play them off each other. It's the only way that I get my life done. I have spent so much time over the last few years working with Parents of kids who don't fit well in the school system and parents in general, parents, particularly of young kids during all of the pandemic stuff, it's just been (laughs) all the way through, but I think it's true for everybody and doubly so for people who are battling one or more areas that's more challenging than average. Balance sounds so nice (laughs) and it sounds so unachievable to so many people to just stop thinking that balance is what most of us ever get.
2: Well, the other thing that jumped out for me there too, is when it all falls down, because yep. occasionally it does just rebuild it. I mean, it was just such practical, straightforward. And when you think about a Jenga, we've, most of us have all played Jenga and it falls down at some point, it gets to be too much and it falls down and you just rebuild it. And I was like, yeah, Okay. Yeah,
0: There are a couple of places in the book where she talks about the need to rebuild because things didn't go the way that you wanted to. She talks about how hard it can be to rebuild after you've tried really, really hard for something that doesn't work. And I think that's worth noting that Mm -hmm. none of this stuff happens if we don't learn to rebuild.
2: She has a story she tells about how when she lost the governor's race. And we can get into all that, but I think we're almost out of time. There were some outside sources there. And when she lost the governor's race, she says she went home and grieved it. I think she gave herself 48 hours. <laughs> I was like, She said, I pulled the covers over my head for two days. And then I'm like, all right, what are we going to do? And she rebuilt by creating Fair Fight Action. And she said, look, I don't want more advantages than other people, but I want a fair fight in this. We need access to voter registration. We need to not have our voter registration purged 24 hours before the election. We need a fair fight. And so she created this non, she was a co-founder of this nonprofit organization. And I love that she rebuilt and has been stronger and better and has made Georgia a better state because of it, because we have more people voting and more people having access to the democratic process.
0: Well, that seems like a really solid note (laughs) to wrap our conversation on and to acknowledge that there's richness and depth and tools that hopefully our listeners will go out and read for themselves and to move to the think away portion of our conversation. So Christine, this is where we just give a question or a thought that we hope our listeners will takeaway. There's so much in a conversation. And so if we can boil it down to sort of one thing, maybe if this is all you take away, then hopefully it will provide value. Do either of you have a think away that you want to share first?
1: I can go. I think mine is very simple, not easy, but simple. It's coming actually right out of the introduction where she says otherness holds an extraordinary power for clarity and invention. So my think away would be to challenge people to think about their own individual otherness, to mine that for clarity and then see what invention can be created from that clarity.
2: I love that, Alyssa. There's so much in this book. I had a hard time coming away with one think away, but what I know to be true is that Stacey Abrams leads with her values. And she talks about that in her book. So my thinkaway would be, what are three to five values that you want to lead with, that you want to have threaded through your whole life and your leadership? I know one of my values is making way and making opportunity for other people who might have obstacles. Where can you do that in your life, in your career? I
0: think the place that I am landing for my think away is the question of community and particularly where help comes from whether it is the community of people that you depend on for emotional support or for skill set development or for trying to get you into doors that are hard the invitation is if it's hard for you to ask for help or hard for you to accept help, to get curious about how you can combat that because it's clear that with community, we can go so much further than we go alone. Nice. Um, so true. Christine, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for bringing us yourself and this book. I want to give you an opportunity to let our listeners know where they can find you. if they want to.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Kate and Alyssa, for having me. This has been a blast. Y'all can find me at christinegautreau.com. You can also find me at womenconnectedinwisdompodcast.com, either place, and you can get hooked up to some of the work I'm doing in the world.
0: Thank you for the work that you are doing in Ah, the world. It
2: is my pleasure. You know, I moved to Atlanta 15 years ago and I literally walk with and in the steps of some giants and I consider Stacey Abrams to be one of them and I am lucky to be in community with her. Thanks y'all for letting me bring the book and this delicious conversation.
1: That was Leadership Arts Review. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now and leave us a
0: review. It really helps us get the word out there. Tell two friends. Also, be sure to follow us at Leadership Arts Review on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to get the latest
1: updates. Our website is podcast.leadershipartsreview.com. Leadership Arts Review is a four Impala production. Music adapted from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.